Well, good evening. Um, lesson three uh, tonight, I want to, again, we're still laying some foundations. I'll remind you of the approach I like to take on almost any subject is to start with the aerial view and zoom in. And so we're still looking at big picture issues. And sometimes we're anxious to hurry up and get to the how-tos and list and tell me what I need to be doing and not be doing so I can hurry up, check my list off, and be sure that uh, I've got my ten things I'm supposed to do and my ten things I'm not supposed to do, and then I can be a good parent. Um, but we're probably never going to get to that, so let me not go ahead and disappoint you uh, if you're looking for that. Okay? Because what's really important are ideas. Ideas have consequences. That's um, it's an old saying. But there's another thing, uh, the opposite of that's true, and that is consequences have ideas. So if you look at the concept, we're talking about children, look at any child, and whatever you see, good, bad, there are ideas behind it. Some ideas produced that child. There are ideas of what's acceptable, what's unacceptable, what's right, what's wrong. Uh, all kinds of ideas went into that child. And so you could say, here's the fruit, here's the, here are the consequences, now let's look, and look around behind the curtain and see what the ideas are that produced the child. If we look at culture, if we look at society, and we look at what's going on, we need to be asking questions like, what are the ideas that are producing this culture? Your home is a culture. And so we need to ask, what ideas are producing the culture? So then again, let's reverse it back the other way. Ideas have consequences. If we get the ideas right and we understand the principles, then we're going to fail along the way. We're going to not always be consistent. We're not going to always uphold our principles. But if we know what our principles are, then we're going to know when we fail. You're not going to be a perfect parent, but you can be blameless parents. And by blameless, the Bible uses that word to describe Abraham, Job, for example, these are not perfect men, as in no flaws, but these are men who, when they did sin, did what God said to do when you mess up. Your parents, you're going to mess up. You're going to fail. You, you don't know how sometimes. You don't know what. Sometimes you're just having a bad day. Sometimes you're a rebellious sinner yourself. Um, and so what do you do when that happens? You repent. You ask God's forgiveness. He cleanses you of all unrighteousness, and you get up and you do it again. You, tr you do better. So you're not going to be perfect, but you can be blameless. That is, okay, I know I fail, but I do what God says to do when I fail. And since you've got a long time to raise kids, if you get the basic principles and ideas correct, if you know what you're supposed to be doing, even when you don't always do it, you still know what you're supposed to be doing. You can make the adjustments, you can make the corrections and come back tomorrow or in the next hour or whenever and begin to do it right. Does that make sense? So, don't, you know, we, we all just up front know that we're not going to do this perfectly, but in order to know where we're going, we have to be clear what the objectives are, what the goals are, what the ideas are, as well as the ideals. The ideals, is, that's what we talked about, getting an image of a perfect household, a perfect husband, a perfect wife, perfect kids, a perfect system. And we're going to talk a little bit about that because we have to have that ideal set before us so that we know which ideas are going to, from the Word of God, are going to enable us to move in the direction of the ideal. Even though we know we're going to fall short, 
we still want to be moving in that direction. So I want to talk about the place of the covenant community. And I'm going, to, let me, I'm going to talk a little bit about covenant. In our church, we use that word a lot, but we use it a lot because the Bible uses it a lot. Uh, it uses it, I don't remember the number exactly, 170-something times. It uses it actually more than it uses the word salvation. Um, so it's a pretty important word. And so we're going to take a little time to talk about covenant in a little while, but let me just say for the sake of our discussion right now, when we use the word covenant community, uh, the best image is your marriage. Your marriage is a covenant. You entered into a formal relationship with another human being, a lifetime covenant, and in that covenant you made promises uh, and you pledged to to, to, uh, uphold certain duties and responsibilities in that relationship. There are benefits and privileges to that relationship, but there are also duties and responsibilities. And to the degree that we keep our duty, do our duty and, and keep our responsibilities, uh, then we're going to reap the blessings of that covenant. If we fail to do our duty, if we fail to maintain our responsibilities, we're going to have misery. We're going to have difficulties. And that's the way a covenant works. There are, covenant, there are promises of blessings if you keep the covenant. And there are promises of curses, actually. I like to just use the word happiness and misery. Okay? If you do what God says to do in this relationship, there's going to be some happiness that comes out of it and some joy and some blessings. And if you don't, then expect some misery. Expect what the Bible calls curses, unhappiness. And, and life is really that simple. It's not easy, but it is simple. The principle is simple. So what we want to strive for, by the grace of God and with all of his help and mercy and strength that we need to get from him and dependence upon him, is we want to be sure that uh, we recognize that he, he designed covenant relationships, marriage, the family, the church, uh, to be communities. God is a community, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the, the three in one, one person, uh, I mean three persons and one God. And that is the picture of perfect communion and community. And so God designed us to live in communities, to live in our nuclear families, to live in the church, and to live in the broader society. So here's the first point in terms of child rearing. God has not called God has not called us to raise our children alone. We are or we should be a part of a broader community and specifically a local church. It matters uh, where we go to church. We're blessed in this community with a lot of churches, many good churches. And so being in a, in a place with other believers where uh, we have support, encouragement, and good instruction, and all those things is essential, since raising of children requires the serious and joyful application of the Word of God day in and day out. A faithful community of believers who is also committed to the application of God's word is essential. When we try to do it alone, and this is sometimes a problem, I'm going to go home and I'm going to figure everything out, I'm going to do it my way, and we're going to, we got everything lined up just so. The problem is, you and I have blind spots. Where are they? I don't know. I'm blind to them. Why I need you. I need you to point them out. Sometimes my kid points them out because he bops your kid on the head with a stick, and then you come to me and say, your kid bopped my kid, and he shouldn't have, and we need to work this out. 
And so I find out my kid, who's been told, you know, not to bop people with a stick, sure enough did, and now I've got to deal with his sin and repentance and, and forgiveness and restoration of relationships, and I have to go home and do a better job with my kid about how to act in public, and then you teach your kid about grace and forgiveness, and we can multiply this over and over and over, not just with our kids, but with each other. And so if we're really in communion with each other, not just showing up and listening to a sermon together, but actually loving each other and living together, then we also learn to talk to each other about our kids. And I mentioned last week the idea of finding mentors and people you could go to and say, would you help me see my blind spots? Would you tell me how I'm doing? And so forth. That's really critical. The scriptures, are, we're told in, in, first Tim, in 2 Timothy 3.16, are profitable. They're, they're inspired by God and they're profitable for doctrine, that is teaching, for reproof, for correction, and instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete. Some of you have seen this little diagram I do here of uh, the Word of God is profitable for doctrine and tells us what road we're supposed to be on. It's also uh, profitable for correction. This is doctrine, correction. Tells us where we got off or sometimes we're doing that. What's, what's going wrong? We open our Bibles and we go, oh, okay, I was doing this. I was supposed to be doing something else. That's where I messed up. And for reproof, tells us how to get back on the road. And so God's Word is not just there to tell us where we're wrong. tells us how to fix and correct what we've been doing. And it's profitable for instruction in righteousness, which tells us how to stay on the road. And therefore, the Word of God has everything we need for life. tells us what road to be on, where we get off, where we've gotten off, how to get back on, and how to stay on the path that God has given us. So the church keeps the Word and sacraments before us. It's not just me alone with my Bible out under a tree having a quiet time, but it's in the context of the people of God, the household of God, the family of God, where the authority has been given and the responsibility to keep that Word and to present it. As I like to say, I'm a... um, I am a minister, a servant of Christ, of both word and sacrament. And I do that publicly every Sunday when I preach the word. And if I'm baptizing or administering the Lord's Supper, those are sacraments uh, that are there to reinforce the gospel and the truth of of Scripture and to remind you as, as the people of God who you are, that you belong to Christ uh, and that, you're, that we're here as God's people and as God's family as we gather around the family table and we listen to the Word of God. Uh, our Father speaks to us um, through the sermon. And then if I come to you privately as a pastor, as a minister of Word and Sacrament, let's say uh, um, you know Roy and Christy are having some issue and I, they ask me to come by to visit with them, oftentimes what I'll do as a pastor is I say, you know, Roy and Christy, I saw you at church, and you were at the Lord's table, so I saw you renewing your commitment to Christ, and you're sitting under His Word. Is that true? I mean, I hope I know that's true, and they'd say yes. I'd say great. So I just I'm here privately as a minister of Word and Sacrament to remind you of who you are. You've been baptized. You're Christians. Two, you're a member of the family of God. I saw you at the family table eating with God's people. And three, that you're committed to doing whatever God's Word says to resolve whatever problem you might be having at that time. Is that right? Yes. Okay, now we're ready to talk. Because I'm not there just to give my opinion. I'm there to bring the Word of God. And that is 
the job of the church and the community to do that for us because we don't always do it ourselves. Ninety percent of what we do, in, even with each other as Christians, is tell each other what we already know. We're not looking always for new information, but oftentimes what I need to be reminded of and what the community does is, oh yeah, today I preached the sermon on anger. Okay? Uh, most of us have been angry before, all of us have, and we've known it was wrong. There's all kinds of things we know about anger. If I'd have asked the group, how many here think anger is usually a sin? Everybody would have raised their hand. Much of what I said today in the sermon you already knew. Now, maybe I said it in a little different way or gave an illustration that helped. But by and large, what I was doing and what Christ was doing in the preaching of his word is reminding you and me of who we are and that his word is the standard and that sure enough, I need to go home and work on this and do better. So the church is, is very important here. While your children are your children, they are also our children. Now, I want to be careful about this, sometimes because we live in a world where the government, the civil government, thinks that your children are their children. I didn't say that they're not your children. They are primarily your children, but when you live in a family, when a, in a larger family as the church is, uh, there is a sense in which those children are also part, certainly part of the community. No one loves your child the way you love your child. Nevertheless, when the covenant community, and by that I just mean the church, is doing what it should, that is fervently loving the brethren, then your child and your children, I should say, are loved as well. First, because we love you, and second, we love the children that you love. Second, because the children themselves are members of the church, they must be fervently loved as fellow Christians. And so we speak of the children of the church. They're not just like pagan children, unbelievers, uh, un the, the children of unbelievers. I love children generally, but I love the children of the church especially. And so uh, the community of God's people is critical, and we see this in the Bible over and over, where God is interested not just in Abraham, but Abraham's children. Not just this person, not just this individual, but this individual's family. And so the covenant community, the church, provides a godly context or environment for raising godly children. In fact, if we try to do it apart from that, we're likely to get it wrong. Again, you and I have blind spots, and if I just go home and do it on my own, my kids are going to have likely the same blind spots that I have, only magnified, because it's going to seem normal to them. Whatever I'm weird at, and I am weird at some things, I just don't know what, um, is going to feel normal to them. And if there's no corrective, if there's no sandpaper, if there's no iron sharpening iron in their lives, then they don't ever feel uh, that there needs to be any adjustments, and they do have a hard time then functioning in the way God needs them, wants them to in the world to be able to interface with people. And so... Uh, this context, it's it, it just a simple principle, it's always easier to raise godly children in the context of a godly home and a godly church. And so we need all the nurture and the support we can get. It's great to have your kids hang around other kids whose parents have similar ideals and ideas and theology 
and notions about what it is uh, that we're doing and why we're doing it and moving generally in the same direction. And so as Christian parents, we should expect to see our children follow us in faithfulness. And this is fully consistent with the promises that God gives to faithful parents. So in, in Psalm 102, verse 28 says, The children of your servants will continue and their descendants will be established before you. And so this is one of God's promises that in faithfulness, as we faithfully follow Christ, we have every reason to expect to see our children do likewise. Psalm 103 is a, is a great passage in this regard, verse 17 and 18. But the mercy of the Lord, and it doesn't just say here, the mercy of the Lord is to you. It says the mercy of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him. There's the individual. And his righteousness to children's children to such as keep his covenant and those who remember his commandments to do them. So, so again, we're not, uh, what God says, I love you, but I also love your children and your children's children. Now, the way to have these blessings come to pass is do what I say. Just believe me. It starts with faith. Trust me. Now go home and do what I said to do. Love them. Pray for them. Teach them the Bible. Put them in a Christian community. Give them Christian education. Give them, surround them with all the blessings and the things I've given you, primarily his word and prayer and his people, then you have every reason to expect my blessings to continue for generations. Uh, Isaiah said this, Isaiah 65, 22 and 23, uh, referring to God's people, they shall not build and another inhabit. And you think about this in light of today's culture and the threats that we feel toward our children. The culture uh, is out there trying to steal our children. They want... The world, the flesh, and the devil want them. And uh, so we're in this, this war, this struggle there. And so he says, They, speaking of God's people, shall not build and another inhabit. They shall not plant and another eat. For as the days of a tree, so shall the days of my people, so shall be the days of my people, and my elect shall long enjoy the work of their hands. They shall not labor in vain, nor bring forth children for trouble, for they shall be the descendants of the blessed of the Lord and their offspring with them. God is interested, that's an understatement, in you. And he's also interested in your children and your grandchildren and beyond that to a thousand generations. By the way, there haven't been a thousand generations yet. And yet God says that's how far his love and his desire of redemption generationally is is to see this perpetuated. <clears throat> These are conditional promises rooted in the grace of God. Now, a conditional promise is something like this. Some of you heard this illustration, but I'll give it again. A conditional promise is not something you earn. So, um, when I tell Katrina to come down to my house, she's my next-door neighbor, Come down at 2 o'clock tomorrow and I'll give you a million dollars if I had it to give. And if she comes and I gave it to her, no one would say Katrina earned a million dollars. Okay, but if she doesn't come, she doesn't get it. She didn't meet the condition. But the condition is not meritorious. It's not, okay, she worked really, really hard and earned this gift. But there was a condition placed upon the gift. She had to show up in order to get it. God puts conditions on his promises. He says, Abraham, 
uh, I'm going to do some great things for you. But what I want, and, and in fact, what he said is, through you, I'm going to bless the whole world. Can you imagine if God told you that? You know, okay, where do I start? How am I going to bless the whole world? And so God says in Genesis 18, 19, Abraham, I've chosen you in order that you may command your household to keep the way of the Lord, to do justice and righteousness so that I, the Lord, can bring all these things to pass. Abraham, I want you to go home and be faithful at your house. I want you to teach your children and your wife and your servants and everything, everybody that's involved with your household to follow me. And if you'll do that, I'll take care of blessing the world. Loaves and fishes. So Abraham, your focus is at home primarily, and I'll take care of how that spreads out and fills the earth. And so um, there is no automatic good result. There is no automatic good result. If we disobey the terms of God's covenant and the training of our children, then we should not be surprised if the outcome is painful. If you get married and you promise to love, honor, and cherish till death do us part, and then you go home and you don't love and you don't honor and you don't cherish, things are not going to turn out well in your marriage. It's really that simple. So you're making certain promises with your children, and God has certain requirements of us as parents, and they're really not, I mean, they're hard in the sense of the day-to-day job of parenting, but the principles are fairly simple. They're going to involve love and discipline and us as parents doing what God requires of us toward our children. That's love. Obeying God toward others. How do I love my neighbor? However, God says I'm supposed to love my neighbor. How do I love my enemy? However, God says I'm supposed to. If he's thirsty, give him a drink. If he's hungry, give him some food. Okay? So how do you love your children? However, God says you're to love your children. So your primary job is going to be to love your children, which means making them cry sometimes, telling them no, giving them a spanking, because that's love. Sometimes. Sometimes it's giving them ice cream. Sometimes it's tickling them. Sometimes it's playing baseball with them. It's all kinds of things, but it's always about loving your children and and doing it in the way God says to do it. Not the way you want to do it necessarily, because a lot of times I don't want to do that. I'd rather not do that. I'd rather not do my duty toward my children. It's too hard. But if I'm going to love my children, then I do it anyway. And I do it by faith. It's a gift. It still, it still absolutely requires the grace of God. It's not a matter of I'm going to be a Pharisee and go home and work really, really hard at being a great parent, and if I'm good enough, God will save my children. That's not it at all. You can't save yourself by your works, and you can't save your children by your works. But you can work, and God can bless that work, and by grace, they'll be saved. By grace, He will, he will bless that labor that was done by faith, Lord, I don't know how this is going to work. You said if I get up every day and feed them and clothe them and love them and pray for them and teach them your word and protect them, that you somehow are going to give them eternal life. I can't give them eternal life. Think of what Paul said. I I planted, Paulus watered, God gave the increase. It's the same way with child training. So if you think you can do just, if you can do it all by doing the planting and the watering, 
without the, without God giving the life to it, then you're mistaken. So we are utterly dependent upon the grace of God. Assuming the responsibility of our calling as Christian parents, living in terms of God's instruction gives us reason to expect His gracious blessings on our children and our children's children. None of us is sufficient in ourselves for this work of childbearing. Nevertheless, as those redeemed by the Lord, washed in the blood, filled with the Spirit, we have every reason to expect these gospel promises to come to pass. And thus we anticipate seeing our children know and walk with the Lord. Let me say this. Your children are going to believe whatever you tell them to believe. They, that's what they do. You know, I can't make my child believe. Well, you can't make them, but you can tell them and they'll do it. Honey, I love you. Do you love mommy? Do you love daddy? Okay. Where did they learn that? You taught them. You told them what to love. Love me, because I love you. Love Jesus, because he loves you. Who loves you? I love one of the questions uh, I think Lee would ask his kid, Lee Hill. Who loves you more than daddy? The right answer is Jesus. One time, I think Will, when he was really little, said Pastor Booth. Um, <laughs> because I gave him candy every Sunday. So, <laughs> But that, uh, he got the idea. All right. Now, what is the purpose, then, of the household? Well, be fruitful and multiply. Procreation is going to be where we start. Procreation. That is, we're going to imitate God by being creators. You, husbands, beget children. Wives, you give children to your husbands. That's the Bible language. But together, you create a human being. You procreate. Uh, so then God blessed them. We read in Genesis 1.28, And God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and subdue it. Have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. So the original goal of creation was to not only have Adam and Eve, who loved God, walked with God, in the pool of the day, in the garden, in paradise, but then they were going to fill the earth with more human beings that did the same thing. And they were just going to keep multiplying until the earth was full of godly people. And then sin wrecked it. They broke covenant. So fill the earth. Uh, Again, exercise dominion over the earth. This was not a job Adam could do alone, so God gave him a helper to bring bring them up, uh, that is, children. And then uh, we have this idea of recreation and redemption. Sin corrupted the household and all the individuals in it, but God purposed for the covenant household also to become the place of remedy. So right as God says, okay, if you eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you're going to die. And, of course, they ate. And then he cursed them. But before he's finished with the curse, he promises a redeemer. He said, I'm going to send uh, the seed of the woman is going to crush the head of the seed of the serpent. Uh, he's going to bruise him on the heel, but he's going to crush his head. That's Christ and Satan. And so the promise of God to redeem through the descendants of, uh, of, of their very children is going to be the means he uses to bring about the redemption of the household. So there's salvation promised. And in Malachi 2.5, the last book of the Old Testament, where God's people have become very unfaithful, and God says this, referring to husband and wife, did he not make them one, having a remnant of the Spirit? And why did he make them one? He seeks godly offspring. 
God made you husband and wife for the purpose of giving him godly children. Not just children, godly children. Therefore, take heed to your spirit and let none deal treacherously with the wife of his youth. In this case, the men were being unfaithful to their wives and God's rebuking them and saying, Stop it. Go home. Be faithful to your wife. Love your children and bring them up in the fear and admonition of the Lord. R.L. Dabney said this. uh, He said, uh, Every parent now transmits to the child he loves, along with the gift of existence, the deadly disease of sin. He has conferred on them, unasked, the endowment of an endless, responsible existence. He has also been the instrument, if the unwilling yet sole instrument, of conveying to this new existence the taint of original sin and guilt. Can the human mind conceive a motive more tender, more dreadful, more urgent, prompting a parent to seek for the beloved souls he has poisoned, the aid of the great physician. So here um, we bring children into the world, we beget children, we procreate, but as soon as this soul comes into existence, it's a sinful soul. It's born corrupt, born under the curse. And so, as believers, our very first motivation, highest motivation, has to be getting the remedy to this child as quickly as possible. We brought them into existence. Now we need to make sure that that existence is one of blessedness for the rest of their lives. Now I like to, um, this illustration I'm going to give is uh, what I just call the hospital analogy. What advantage is it to be born into a Christian household? How big an advantage is that? Huge. How big an advantage if you had a terminal illness to be born in the hospital where the remedy was? Well, that's what's happened God's, in, among God's people. Is If you're given children, you're believers, you have God's word. In fact, that's the question Paul asked in regard to circumcision as he's writing uh, in the book of Romans. What advantage is circumcision? And I believe that we can say the same thing in the New Testament about baptism. What advantage is this? To be marked as being among the people of God. And his answer is a really powerful one. Romans 2. Much in every way. (laughs) Okay. Huge. In every way. And he says, first, you've been given the oracles of God. You've been given the Bible. How big a deal is that? To be born in the very place where there's a Bible there with the Word of God, which is able to make you wise unto salvation. Paul tells Timothy, from the time you were a brephos, from the time you were a nursing baby, that's the Greek word, you have known the Holy Scriptures, which are able to make you wise unto salvation. How big a deal is that? God does not simply want to fill the earth. He wants to fill it with the righteous. And so, if you're born in the hospital, and again, I I believe that we should baptize our children, but that's a separate topic for another night. But regardless of when we baptize them, what we're saying, if baptism is like the bracelet you get when you go to the hospital, it says, I belong here. I'm a member, I'm I'm a patient in the hospital. Could you be born in the hospital 
have the remedy over here, but not ever get it? What if the doctors and the nurses were lousy? And there you were, born in the hospital, and the remedy's over there, but no one ever went and got it and gave it to you. Could you be born in the church, born in a Christian, a family that the church, that are church members, and die without the remedy? Yeah. That's horrible. That's, that's, that's just like super horrible uh, to say so close yet so far away. But if you have unfaithful pastors and unfaithful parents who think, oh well, we got the bracelet, we got, we got them baptized, but you know, we didn't do anything else. We didn't pray for them. We didn't teach them God's Word. We didn't do any of the other things God says to do. Uh, we didn't apply the remedy to them in any meaningful way. So here, they got the bracelet doesn't mean squat if you don't get the remedy. But what about children who are born outside the hospital to unbelieving parents? What do we have to do there? We've got to go get them. That's what missionaries do. That's what evangelists do. That's what we do with our neighbors and friends as we go get those people and bring them to the hospital, whatever age they are, and get the bracelet and get the remedy applied. We go make disciples. We go make patients, if you will, of God's hospital, which is the church. And so the household is the primary social institution. It is, let me say this about your family. It is not all important. There are other things that are important, is what I'm saying. Your family is important. It is not all important. We'll expand on this. It is not self-sufficient. But it is foundational. A foundation is essential to this building, but it's not all important. If that's all we had was a slab here and a foundation, we still wouldn't have everything we need. It's essential. It's foundational. But it is not sufficient in and of itself to do every part of the job. Godly churches and societies are made of godly households. Nothing has a greater impact on the future. And here's the good news, parents. You have the power as a parent to change the world. Now, you don't have power over a lot of people. But you have a lot of power over a few people. In fact, you pretty much have absolute power over a few people. So government, civil government, has a lot of power over a lot of people, but it's not nearly as thorough and deep as the power you have over your own children. You pretty much control everything. And so you have the ability not only to have an impact on your children, I'll just use myself as a tiny example here. I had three children. They're having an impact on the world. They married, and then so now there were six. There were three new households that spun off of ours, and now there are 13 grandchildren being raised to the glory of God. Okay, if we multiply this out a few generations, you can see how if you've done a good job with yours, and then they do a better job with theirs, and then they do a better job with theirs, we can conquer the world, or God can conquer the world that way. You can have a huge impact on the world. 
So what we're putting in the river right now matters. And to, to tie this together a little bit, uh, just to illustrate, again, some of you have heard this, but uh, to, to help show how close we really are. Anybody ever known anybody 100 years old? Or known of them? Okay. How many 100-year-old people, metaphorically speaking, holding hands would it take to reach back to the time of Christ? 20. Another 20 gets us back to Abraham, and another 20 gets us back to Adam. We are not that far removed from those who've gone before us. And as we turn around and look at the river the other way, there are many others to come. And so what we do now, what we put in the river now, has a dramatic impact going forward. So let's talk a a few minutes here, and we'll take a break, about the governmental structure of the covenant household. One of the things I like to say is a covenant is a government. Think of your household as a kingdom or a city. And fathers and husbands, you're the king, and wives, you're the queen, and the children are the peasants, the uh, subjects. And so the covenant is inherently familial. It's to you and your children. Ordinarily, children are brought. Ordinarily, children are brought into the kingdom by way of the family. That's the. Or, I call that primary evangelism. That's the main way the kingdom grows. The secondary way is we go get people from outside and they're converted and, and bring them in, and then they get married to believers and start having children, and they do primary evangelism. So think of those two ways that the kingdom of God grows. And so Psalm 78, 4-7 describes this role of the covenant, of covenant continuity. Four generations are mentioned here. So I want you to think of how in having your family, one of the, thing, one of the key things you're doing is evangelism. You're making sure your children embrace and follow Jesus Christ so that your grandchildren and your great-grandchildren will also do the same. Here's Psalm 78, 4-7. We will not hide... The, God's deeds from their children, telling to the generation to come the praises of the Lord and his strength and his wonderful works that he has done. For he established a testimony in Jacob and appointed a law in Israel, which he commanded our fathers that they should make make them known to their children, that the generation to come might know them, that the children who would be born, that they may arise and declare them to their children that they may set their hope in God and not forget the works of God. I want you to have a four-generation vision of what you're doing. Your goal is to raise your children, to raise your grandchildren, to raise your great-grandchildren. Each generation doing it better. You want your children as adults to start off raising your grandkids better than you started. So that's what you're doing every day. You want to, that's why I go back and say your relationship with your wife and husband is so critical. Do you want your children to marry well? Do you want them to be happily married? Do you want them to marry godly people and have a great marriage? Then you better have a great marriage. And you better, if, you're, if you don't, you better be working on it. There's, there's no curriculum. There's no lesson. There's nothing other than the, the two most critical lessons is worship and your marriage. Those are the two top-of-the-heap things 
that will produce great kids. Your kids ought to say, not ought to, your kids might say, my mom and dad didn't have much materially. But they left us two things. They left us a testimony of faithfulness to God and faithfulness to each other. What is that worth? What would you pay for that? All right, back to children. We'll get we'll say more about the government here in a minute. And when it comes to our children, we give them our name. They belong to us, we belong to God, and therefore they belong to God. This is why we read in 1 Corinthians 7.14, this is why they are sanctified, set apart, holy. For the unbelieving husband is sanctified by the wife, the unbelieving wife sanctified by the husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but now they are holy. Children born into a Christian home are set apart. They are holy. They are in a special category, if you will. This is why they receive, I believe, the covenant sign, or should, but again, another subject, uh, Psalm 128, 1 through 3. Blessed, happy, if you see the word blessed, just say happy is everyone who fears the Lord, who walks in his ways. When you eat the labor of your hands, you shall be happy and it shall be well with you. Your wife shall be like a fruitful vine in the very heart of your house, your children like olive plants all around your table. That's the picture that God paints of the, of the man who is the most blessed man is this fruitful household where everybody's gathered around the table. This lovely image. Ezekiel 16, 20-21. Moreover, you took your sons and your daughters whom you bore to me, and these you sanctified to them to be devoured. Excuse me, I misread that. Moreover, you took your sons and your daughters whom you bore to me, and these you sacrificed to them to be devoured. Speaking of false gods. Were your, were your acts of harlotry a small matter that you have slain my children and offered them up to them by causing them to pass through the fire? So these were people who had gone into a pagan land, they forgot God, and now they were sacrificing their children to, to these false gods. And he says, wait a minute, those are my children you're sacrificing. Now all governments must have laws by which to govern Therefore, the household is governed by the law, that is, God's law, God's word. We live in an age of egalitarianism, where everyone wants to be equal to everyone else, including a desire to be equal with God. Such egalitarian notions are antithetical to God's word, that is, they go against what God says. The Bible <coughs> teaches us that when it comes to Economic relationships, there are, this is really important here, a key lesson for tonight, there are such things as superiors, inferiors, and equals. Again, this goes really against the grain of what we're told in pop culture, that pop culture is not what instructs us, the Word of God is. This is true of our, and so when I talk about economics of relationship, in theology there is what's called the ontological trinity, that refers to the being of God. So Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are ontologically equal. That is, they're, the three persons of the Godhead are equally God. But 
theology talks about the economical trinity, which says, but as the Father, Son, and Spirit, they do different things. They, there's, a, there's an economy here in which the Father, the, the, the first person of the Godhead, does some things. He begets the Son, for example. The Son does something else. He's the mediator between God and man. And the Spirit does other things. And together, they're a community that work together as one. Well, likewise, your household is an economy. People do different things. The father and the husband do certain things. The wife and the mother do other things. And the children do other things. Together, when we all do what we're supposed to do and do it well and without sin, we have a perfect place, ideally. <clears throat> but there is a hierarchy that is inescapable. Um, and so it is by way of God's covenants that the roles of superior, inferior, and equal are established by God. God gets to say who does what, in other words. And so it's important to note that there is more than one way to speak of persons as superiors and inferiors. And I just mentioned that on the Trinity. But let me say, put it this way. Are, you equal, are we all equal? Well, that's a kind of those trick questions, yes and no. We are equal as persons before God, male, female, no distinction in Christ. Okay? But are there differences in us? Are, are some of you smarter than others? Some of you better looking than others? Some of you have more money than others? Some of you have more education than others? Some of us are older than you? Uh, some are younger? I mean, there's all kinds of differences. Some of you can sing, some of you can write, some of you can dance, some of you can... Do accounting, even. So we have many differences in which we're not equal. We are equal as human beings, so we're ontologically equal before God, but we are not economically equal. And so we're going to need to understand the differences here because God's going to say, again, as persons we're equal, but the positions we occupy are not. And we get into a lot of trouble in our households and how we raise our kids when we don't know who's supposed to do what. What does God require of you? What is your task? And when we get that out of whack, and we often do, both parents and kids, we begin to have unnecessary conflicts. And so, here's how I'd like us to begin to think about this. I'm going to take a little time with this because I think it's, again, an important foundational truth. If you are a superior, let me tell you who the superiors are. First of all, God's the ultimate superior. He's superior over everybody. God is the superior. And we're going to talk about three different communities or covenants. And this is going to be uh, the... We just call this the family, the church, and the state. So God is over all of these. He gives directions to each of these spheres of our lives. In the state, we would have, uh, I'll just to make it simple, I'm going to call it the king, the governor, and the citizens who have different roles. The king is a superior. He's, he holds the top position. 
now, can you have an idiot king? Yeah. So he might not be that bright. He might be evil. We're not talking anything about his character or his ability. We're talking about his position. He occupies that position. Under that, governors are under the king. Maybe they're over territories. And then under that, a citizen. So we have the king is a superior to the governor and the citizens. Uh, the governor is an inferior to the king, but superior to the citizens. Citizens are inferior to the governor and the king. Citizens, plural, are equals. So we have superiors, inferiors, and equals. In the church, we might have uh, the uh, pastor and elders, the deacons, and the congregation. Okay, same kind of setup. Occupying different positions. Again, not speaking as to whether they're good or bad or talented or untalented. Those are separate questions. In the household, we have, uh, I'm just going to call it household. We have the father, mother, and children occupying different positions. Father might be an idiot. Might be an immoral man. He might have all kinds of issues, but he still occupies that head position. In fact, what we're going to see is if it turns out that he's a godly, mature, loving, giving, sacrificing leader, then that household is probably going to have a lot going for it, right? And if he's a knucklehead, if he's, a, if he's an abuser or an abandoner or a sluggard or abusive, then that's going to be the main characteristic of that household, right? What if he's just an absentee father and husband? What's going to happen? Is that household going to look different? What's going to happen is... The mother and the wife are going to have to now start trying to do jobs that they were not necessarily intended to do because he won't. That's what I mean by that being the dominant feature. You cannot escape. If you're the head, you're the head. And if you're a knucklehead, then things are not going to be looking good in that situation. Now, if the two-year-old down here is acting up and having a temper fit, that's going to affect the whole family, but not in the same way as it is if the father is. Does that make sense? So the lower down the scale you go in terms of positions, then the less impact it has, it still has impact, but has less. Now in each case, the head is accountable to God. So let's think of it this way. that If you're a superior, and all of you are, in some position, you know, you're either, if you're the father and the husband, you're head of the household, but if you're a wife, you're an inferior to your husband in terms of position, and if you're, but you're also a superior to your children. In fact, we're going to see in the Bible that the Bible says children are to look at father and mother as though they're the same. They're really one. From the children's point of view, there's no difference. Same authority. Now, let me illustrate this. If I'm driving down the loop here, and I'm speeding, and a policeman pulls me over for speeding, is it possible, just hypothetically, that I, the speeder, am smarter than the policeman? That I'm maybe a better person? I treat my wife better and pay my bills on time and go to church? And he doesn't. Is that possible? Does that have anything to do with whether he has authority to write me a ticket? His position is superior to mine regardless of what kind of person I am. 
He occupies, when it comes to the traffic laws, a superior position, which means he has both a responsibility to, to, in this case, the city government to enforce the laws, and he has a excuse me, he has a duty to enforce the laws in one direction. He has a duty to those above him and a responsibility to those below him. So if I'm the head of the household, I have a duty to God and a responsibility to those who are under my care. So being the head doesn't mean I'm the guy who gets, you know, everybody to wait on me. That's the false, that's the devil's lie about what it means to be the head. To be the head means you're the chief servant. So the police officer's motto is to protect and to serve. Now, they don't all do that, but they should. So they're servants of the community. They're there to protect us. So if I get stopped from speeding, what's happening? He's protecting others from me. Because I'm not doing what I'm supposed to be doing as a citizen. I'm breaking the law. And his duty is to enforce the law and protect other people from people like me who are misbehaving. So if I'm the father and the children are misbehaving, it is my job to make sure they stop or to support my wife as she also is, has that duty and responsibility. So the head has a primary duty for whoever's above them. So fathers... And husbands, should say husbands, have primary duty to God. God, how do you want this household to run? What rules need to be here? Now, God says, wait a minute, you're not capable of doing this by yourself. I'm going to give you a helper, your wife. You can't do this by yourself. So the first thing I want you to do, I want you to read my word, and I want you to consult with your wife. She knows things you don't know. She's smarter than you about some things. She's more gifted than you about some things. And you need her. So this is not some tyrannical, I'm the head, everybody do what I want, get in line, woman. If that attitude is anywhere near a man, uh, he needs to repent because that's not what the Bible teaches. That is not a Christian view. That's some other view. That's an alien view. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. The, the man, the head of the house, is, has the primary responsibility to be like Christ, which means he's the chief servant of the household, which means sometimes he's going to make his wife unhappy if he's doing his job. Sometimes he's going to make his children unhappy. Sometimes parents are going to make their children unhappy. Sometimes he's going to be wrong, and his wife's going to know he's wrong, and she's going to have to learn to joyfully work in that situation. Now, I don't, we're going to say a whole lot more about this in a minute. When the wife, a wife is, comes under her husband, that's submission. The husband has a mission. What's the mission? We read about it a little earlier. God says, I want them to be one, and I want them to give me something. What? Godly children. So what's, what's the head's primary job now? Is to give the Lord those godly children. And God says, you need a helper. So here comes my helper. And she helps me in, in a zillion ways. That's kind of an understatement, to be honest. And so I need to honor her and cherish her and respect her and recognize she's a gift of God to me. And rather than me abuse that, I'm to recognize that I'm very needy of that. 
And so I am responsible for the mission, and she comes under the mission. That's the word submission. We share the mission. We should have the same mission, the same goal. Do we ever, do we ever disagree? Yes. But that's where wisdom comes. If we've also learned the other things God teaches us about how to talk and how to pray and how to communicate. But at the end of the day, since I'm the head, I'm responsible for the decisions that are made. I can't say, well, the woman you gave me, that's what Adam tried, which is another way of saying, God, it's really your fault. If you hadn't given me her, then I wouldn't be in this mess. I'm responsible for my children and how they turn out. Fathers. You are responsible for everything in your household. You say, you mean everything that's bad is my fault? No, you're responsible for everything. If there's something bad in your house, you're responsible to deal with it, work on it, fix it, and to provide the appropriate godly leadership to bring about maturity in those areas that are deficit. Wives, you occupy, not a, you're not an inferior person. You may, in fact, in many cases, you are a superior person. You're definitely easier to look at. You're softer, kinder, gentler in most cases. You bring so many things to the table, to the family, to the, to the community, to the covenant. But you do occupy, in the, using this language, an inferior position. Inferior just meaning you're under something. It's a hierarchy. Somebody has to be ultimately responsible. And this is actually a blessing when you come to understand this. It's actually a relief to say, you know what? I'm going to make my best case. I'm going to talk with my husband. I'm going to try to persuade him that this is the way we ought to do it. But at the end of the day, if he says, no, I really have listened to what you have to say, but I think it would be better if we do it this other way. Now, you may not always like that. You, in fact, let me rephrase that. You will not always like that. And what you may not do is an end run and say, unless he's causing you to sin or making, asking you to commit a sin, your job is going to be to say, um, well, I don't think that's going to work. I don't think that's very wise, but if that's the way you want to do it, we'll give it a try. In fact, I would urge you, when he does make some bad decisions, um, is go ahead and play them out. If you try to do an end run, you know, um, Jeremy says to Katrina, Katrina, uh, our budget's really tight, and so grocery budget is $200 a month. What would you say to that? Can you do that? Okay, you say, honey, I think that's impossible. Uh, we're going to need to do something else. And, and Jeremy says, well, make your best case, and you do. And he says, no, I think we can do it. And you should say, after whatever time period it finally, let's say it finally said my final decision is $200 a month. Well, the first thing I'd do is probably have beans and rice every night for that next week. And I suspect he would start wanting to know, you know, what's going on here, okay? Or you could say, honey, would you help me out here? Obviously, you're much wiser than me here. Um, would you go to the grocery store with me and show me how to do this because I just I guess I just don't know and I don't mean to just in other words if you, if you but if you do an end run let's say you have some other source of income or you take a little money out of this part of the budget and you secretly go out and you buy pork chops and, and you start serving them 
And he, and he thinks, hey, this is working out pretty good. You know, $200 a month, I'm eating pretty well. In other words, let him play this out and see how it works. It can work on what times do the children go to bed and all kinds of issues. But husbands, you know, hopefully you're not, gonna, I'm giving an extreme illustration here, but sometimes when you're, if you work for somebody and they're your boss or whatever and superior, and sometimes they make decisions you don't like, rather than doing an end run and being a rebel, you know, if, you're, if your husband's, if y'all talk about bedtimes for your kids and you say bedtime's nine o'clock, and uh, you make your best, I think it ought to be 10 because they have homework and they have all this, and I think they'll do fine with nine hours of sleep or whatever. Um, and at the end of the day, your husband says, uh, no, I'm, we're going to go ahead and stick with nine. Okay? But then, let's say three weeks goes, goes by and he's out of town one day, and you tell the kids, well, dad's not here, you can stay up to 10. What if you just talk to your kids? As long as you don't get caught, you can defy authority. You also just taught your kids how to defy your authority when you're not looking. So these principles are very important. Now, hopefully you don't have very many of these big conflicts where you have big differences of opinion about how it ought to be done, but you are going to have some, and it's important to understand the principle of who's responsible. Now, if it's a bad decision and he's made it, what's that? Okay, time to take a break. Okay. Um, then you, if he's made a bad decision, you let it play out, then, you know, he's going to bear the responsibility for that and hopefully be able to make the correction. All right, let's take a break and we'll come back. All right, I'm going to shift gears here. And uh, I realized that one of the problems I, I told uh, Marinelle is I've taught some of these things I've taught for many years um, and um, my notes, in some cases, haven't changed. I'm working off the same things. It's just that uh, I know a few more things than I used to know when I talked through this, so I'm not getting through the material quite as quickly. So um, we're just going to jump ahead. I want to talk now about some goals and objectives. And so I'll have a list here, um, and um, we'll just see how far we get in the time we've got left. Remember, in order to, to hit a goal, we got to have some kind of a plan, some idea of where we're going and uh, how we're going to get there. And so we need, the more concrete we can be with specific goals and objectives in order to obtain that successful or happy uh, household. And so, again, we need a map or a plan that will show us where we're going and how to get there. And, of course, we have that in the Bible. Uh, That information is there. So I want to just, the list I'm going to give you is not the list. Okay, there isn't. There are a lot of ways this could be done. A lot of times when we teach, all we're trying to do is find a way to organize the material. So sometimes it could be 10 things or 20 things or 3 things or whatever. Uh, so don't, don't absolutize these, but this will just give us some broad categories to think about. And so number one goal and objective is the turning of hearts, not just bodies. The turning of hearts not just bodies. If at the end of the day our children don't love God, don't love us, don't love the things that we that they should love, then we have failed. They may have a lot of money, they may have a lot of education, they may have a lot of things, but if they don't have that, they have nothing. And so the goal at every turn, at every day, at the end of every week, is to see our children's hearts 
being shaped in the right way. That you cannot do by yourself. Again, we've already talked about the need for community, but of course the need for the grace of God. That means if you're not praying, uh, if you're not relying upon the Lord for your own strength, uh, as well as his work in their hearts, then you're missing the point. Malachi 4, 1 through 6, Behold, the day is... Remember, this is the last chapter of the Old Testament. God had told Abraham, I want you to go home and command your household to keep the way of the Lord to do justice and righteousness so I can bless the whole world through your descendants. What happened over the years, many fell away, many forgot that, many had fallen into other kinds of, of unfaithfulness. And so as the Old Testament closes, God is basically bringing a lawsuit against, his, against Israel. He brings charges against the priest. He brings charges against fathers. Uh, he brings charges about, uh, he says, you're robbing me of tithes and offerings. But we get to the last chapter, just the fourth chapter book. At the very close of the Old Testament, he says this. For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, and all the proud, yes, all who do wickedly, will be stubble. And the day is coming, which shall burn them up, says the Lord of hosts. That will leave them neither root nor branch. That's a reference to family, by the way. But to you who fear my name, the Son of Righteousness shall arise with healing in his wings, referring to Christ. And you shall go out and grow fat like stall-fed calves. You shall trample the wicked, for they shall be ashes under the soles of your feet. Sounds like dominion over the earth, right? On the day that I do this, says the Lord of hosts. Remember the law of Moses. Another way of saying, remember my word. Remember my servant, which I commanded him in Horeb for all Israel with the statutes and judgments. Behold, I will send you Elijah, the prophet, before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. Let me just stop and interpret that. We're going to see in, in the New Testament where this is quoted. That's a reference to John the Baptist, Elijah, and the, the prophet who will come before the great and dreadful day of the Lord. That's the coming judgment uh, that ultimately will come through Christ against Israel for their unfaithfulness. And he, referring to John the Baptist, the, pre, the precursor, the pre-runner, the forerunner, if you will, of the gospel... And he will turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the hearts of the children to the fathers, lest I come and strike the earth with a curse. So the gospel, which the message John the Baptist proclaimed, which is calling the lost sheep of Israel to repent. Those who weren't doing what God had called them to do in regard to their families. He's going to be calling fathers to return their hearts to their children. Otherwise, God says, I'm going to bring a judgment upon the whole culture. If, if this land doesn't change, then I'm going to bring judgment upon it. But if, if you want blessing to come, it's going to come when fathers' hearts are turned back to their children. Glorifying God and enjoying Him, then, is going to be uh, the ultimate purpose here of turning their hearts to love the Lord. Uh, man's natural tendency is to glorify himself and enjoy himself. Families certainly find themselves naturally pursuing those goals. And in the right balance, these things can be a blessing from God, but they can also be abused. And, 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 and so we are warned, what shall it profit a man if he gain the whole world? Let me put your kids in there. What shall it profit if your children are successful, make lots of money, are famous, what shall it profit them if they do all of that and lose their own souls? 
There have certainly been households go down in destruction because these other pursuits took precedent. Dad's job and making money become more important than what God requires. Mom's career spending become more important than what God requires. Children's toys and entertainment become more important than what God requires. And we could add a long, long list here of things that can get in the way. In the end, what do you have if all you have is money and success, material goods, toys, and entertainment? What's more important in your family, the material success of you and your children or your spiritual success? Now, I don't think those are mutually exclusive. I think God often blesses materially, but it ought to be in that order. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and then let God add to you the things that you need, not the other way around. When we get it backwards, it's where we get into trouble. Every family decision should be made in the context of how will this impact our walk with God. Every decision is made in that context. And what if in the end all you have is well-disciplined children but you don't have their hearts? They know what to do. You tell them, you know how to act, and they do. I see kids from time to time, many from Christian homes. I run into this at school some. Uh, they know exactly how to be respectful and polite. Yes, sir, yes, sir, yes, sir, until your back's turned. And you can tell from the heart. You can tell the attitudes there. They know the right words to say. They know what they're, how they're supposed to respond. They know how they're supposed to behave to stay out of trouble and not get corrected. But their heart's not there. They may obey you because they're afraid of you. They may obey you because you, uh, they've learned how to avoid you. Uh, but we need obedient hearts that obey because they love us. Jesus said, if you love me, you keep my commandments. They will love us when we first love them. That's the pattern. Hearts of fathers turn to children. And, and by the way, of course, that includes mothers. But that's, the, that's the way the Bible speaks. So when parents love their kids, and that means, again, disciplining them and telling them no sometimes and all kinds of things. But when, you, when they perceive that you're, you're, this isn't about them having to be obedient just to keep you from getting mad or getting upset or it's all about you. But they understand that your commitment is to see them honor God in their lives. And that when you require them to do something they don't want to do, it's not just because you're in a bad mood, but it's because it's what's good for them. And they'll see that. And they'll see that as love. Not maybe at the moment, but they will see it. Second goal and objective is the centrality of the Bible. First, the household is to be set apart unto God. Sanctify them in the truth, Jesus said. Your word is truth. So our, our Christian households are sanctified. They're set apart. And what sets them apart is God's word. Yes. It is the centrality of the Bible. So, and the, so, so first part of that is what sets our household, what makes our household special and different is that it's a Christian household. And the way we know that is God's word is what makes the rules. That's the standard. The word of God is essential for covenant heads um, if we're to know what to do. Deuteronomy 4, 8, 9. And, and what great nation is there that has such statutes and righteous judgments as are in all this law which I set before you today? Only take heed to yourself. And diligently keep yourself, lest you forget the things your eyes have seen, unless they depart from your heart all the days of your life, and teach them to your children and your grandchildren. 
Now, you can't teach the Bible if you don't know the Bible. If you don't ever read the Bible. So, again, at the very near the top of the list here is the centrality of the Bible. If that's not part of your household, if that's not part of your child, and I don't mean like any of you ever see the Waltons, that old show uh, with John Boy and all that, okay? I hated that show for a lot of reasons. Uh, mostly it, it glorified Emerson but um, uh, and Walton Mountain. But usually when the kids got in trouble, first of all, the, the fathers and grand, father and grandfather never went to church. They stayed home and sawed wood. That's like real men. Real men don't go to church. Only women and children go to church. It's for sissies. Another long sociological story I'll tell some other night. So you got in trouble, go to your room and memorize a Bible verse. That's really what happened, you know. So we're going to really teach you to love the Word of God. We're going to whip you with it every time you get out of line. That's not what I'm talking about. We want them to love the, the law, to love God's Word, to delight in His Word. It's sweeter than honey. And so it has to be set in a context that is that way. Now, again, I'm still under number two here. The, the first, I have some subheadings here. First was, uh, we're set apart by the Word. Second, it is what sets the standard for our household. Third, God's Word must be diligently taught to your children. Deuteronomy 6, 6-9. These words which I command you today shall be in your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children. You shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk in the way, when you lie down, when you rise up. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand. They shall be as frontless front between your eyes. Write them on the doorpost of your house and on your gates. In other words, God, when He gave us this passage, He's saying, the Word of God should permeate your household. It should be everywhere they turn. It should be in the way you talk. Not, not just quoting verses here, but just the way you talk. God's presence in your house. When somebody walks through your door, they know there's something different in this house from other houses. And that difference is God's Word. Fourth, obedience to God's Word brings blessings or happiness. Deuteronomy 28, 1-6. Now it shall come to pass. I know I'm talking fast. I'm trying to cram a lot in here. Um, now it shall come to pass, if you diligently obey the voice of the Lord your God, you observe carefully all His commandments which I command you today, that the Lord your God will set you high above the nations of the earth. And all these blessings shall come upon you and overtake you, because you obey the voice of the Lord your God. Blessed shall you be in the city. Blessed shall you be in the country. Blessed shall be the fruit of your body and your children. The produce of your ground, the increase of your herds, the increase of your cattle, the offspring of your flocks. Blessed, blessed shall be your basket and your kneading bowl. Blessed shall you be when you come in. Blessed shall you be when you go out. So there's the multiplying of the loaves and fishes. Obedience to God's Word. A faithful following of Him. A commitment to Him. You're the Lord every day. Fifth, success comes to those who practice God's Word. And, uh, and so we read in Joshua 1, 7-8. Only be strong and very courageous that you may observe to do according to all the law which Moses, my servant, commanded you. Do not turn from it to the right, to the right hand or the left, that you may prosper wherever you go. This book of the law shall not depart out of your mouth, but you shall meditate in there, therein day and night that thou mayest observe to do according to all that is written therein. Then thou shalt make thy way prosperous. Then thou shalt have good success. For I... For have I not commanded you, be strong and be of good courage. That's something parents need to hear a lot. Do not be afraid. 
Do not be dismayed. For the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. But if you don't know his word, then he's not with you. That's how he's with you. It's by his spirit and his word. So it always starts with us, and then it's going to work out to our children. So number two, the Bible is central. Number three, the goal is maturity. Actually, the goal, the Bible translates the word that we often say maturity as perfection. You shall be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. The great goal and objective of life is maturity, that is completeness, living in terms of God and our neighbor. Your goal is going to be to teach your children to love the Lord their God with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love their neighbor as themselves. That's the summary. Jesus said those are the two great commandments. So that means those are your two great commandments. Love God, love your neighbor. And so... We have a world full of babies in grown-up bodies. When the covenant household is neglected and promised miseries follow, do you like living in a world where you cannot trust or depend on your neighbors? If not, then the change has to begin at your house. We want our children to leave home. God also wants them to leave home and establish new covenant households. And to be equipped to be mature adults who know and exercise their duties and their responsibilities, this can't be done without risk. And by the way, that's always in the context of joy. It's not some kind of duty and responsibility with a stern look. It's duty and responsibility full of joy. The joy of the Lord is our strength. Obeying God is not a burden. It's a pleasure. It's what brings happiness. It's how life works. It's how things go well when I do what God says to do. Leading our children to understand themselves and the world in which they live, they must learn what to do, when to do it, how to do it. That's the easy part. Anyone can tell someone else what to do. We can bark orders. But they must learn why they're doing it. That is, leading our children to a point of understanding is a much more difficult task. It's just easier to do it ourselves. We must not underestimate what our children can do. So again, I got a little kid. Okay, sometimes I see people who say, "Oh, I don't let them. You know, I got to go in there and I got to fix their uh, their cereal." Now I realize if they're two, they may need help fixing their cereal. But if they're five and you're still fixing their cereal, there's something wrong with you. Oh, but they might spill the milk. Yeah, they might. Not only they might, they will. You know how to clean up milk, don't you? Let me rephrase that. They know how to clean up milk, don't they? You don't clean it up, always clean it up, do you? Do you do everything for them? Okay, can they do it? I don't mean in a, you know, not in a harsh kind of way, honey. Okay, it's just spilt milk. Go get a towel. Let me show you how to do this. Let me help you. And we'll clean it up. And then next week when they do it again, maybe this time you say, go get a towel and clean it up. Now they know how. You've shown them how. You've loved them. You're not angry, you're just training them so that they can clean up their own spills. They're going to need that skill pretty soon in a way much bigger than milk. But if you're still doing everything for them, you know, if you're still, you know, having to cut their food when they're capable of cutting it, and you're still having to put food in their mouth when they're capable of putting it in their mouth, and you're still doing everything for them, really what you're saying is, yeah, but I want to be needed. 
I want them to be dependent on me because I want to be special. That's really selfish. Your goal is to get them to to be self-governed under God. And the sooner you can do that, the better. You're going to be happier, they're going to be happier, and I promise you the rest of the world is going to be happier. Don't underestimate what your children can do. This might be true academically, but it might be even more common when it comes to daily activities. As they get older, we have to stand next to them and direct, if we have to stand next to them and direct every step of every activity they do, then we are failing in our training. The goal is to raise adults, not children. Number four, sanctification. The goal and objective for men is to faithfully represent God, the Father. Now, this is about our sanctification, by the way. (laughs) This is our maturity. The goal of the Father is to faithfully represent God, the Father, as a father, and God, the Son, as a husband. The family is the place most conducive for training in godliness. A bride spotless and without wrinkle is the goal. The home is the place where a woman is to cultivate and manifest a quiet and gentle spirit. Now, because the Bible says that's precious in the sight of God. I said, wait a minute, i got one of those outgoing personalities. That's great. Use it. That's who you are. God made you that way. But in the context of that personality, that, what that doesn't mean is now it's permission to be overbearing and pushy and rude. Or to be bossy. Okay? That means you've got to take the gifts God gave you and use them. The Christian wife and mother should be more and more set apart from the world, sanctified, oriented toward godly development of herself and her household. Just like your marriage needs to be great for your kids, you need to be great for your kids. You need to be the model of a godly woman or a godly man for your child. 1 Corinthians 7 talks about our children being holy. The goal and objective of the covenant home is not simply to have children, but to produce godly children What is it that sets covenant children apart? The privilege of Christian parents, that is, having Christian parents sets them apart, and instruction from God's Word, prayer, discipline, and so forth, the examples that you provide. That's a huge blessing to them. Number five, loving our neighbors. It's God's job to love the world. It's our job to love our neighbors. G.K. Chesterton talks about uh, being born in a family. He's, a, he's from London. He says it's like walking down in a neighborhood of houses in London and dropping down a chimney at random and having to get along with all the people on the inside. And he, and he says that's really what it's like being born into a family. You know, these are the folks you got. Okay, I say that about the church. The church is a giant foster home. We get people in all kinds of conditions, from all kinds of backgrounds, and these are the people God gave us. And we've got to love them and work with them and, and learn from them and bless them and be blessed by them. And you can't do that without some trouble. So in your household, we have the, the emphasis here is learning to love our neighbors, and there are no closer neighbors than our families. Chesterton again points out that men often avoid those close to them complaining that they're dull. And he says they're lying. He's really fleeing from his street or his home because it is the great, it's a great deal too exciting. 
It is exciting because it is exacting, and it's exacting because it's alive. Oh, it's exciting out there in the world. My house is boring. Oh, it's actually quite the opposite. Your house is rather exciting. You're just not paying attention. It is a very exciting place. You just need to engage it. You need to see it. God has placed us in families not only to learn to love Him, but that we might also learn to love our neighbors. If a husband and wife can't love one another, how, how are they going to love anyone? If brothers and sisters, you know, if I, if I only love people I don't know very well, then I've missed the point. Isn't the whole idea to be fully known by, and to be fully loved, isn't that what God does for us? He knows me completely, and He still loves me. That's hard to imagine. It's easy for me to love people I don't know very well. Oh, he was a funny guy. Yeah, well, you don't have to live with him. Loving our neighbors is hard work. If brothers and sisters will not learn to love one another, then where shall they learn it? So let me just pause there and say one of your primary things with your your children and siblings is you insist that they show love and respect for each other. Okay? We're pretty good at at disciplining them maybe about picking up their toys or taking out the trash or feeding the dog. But don't treat your sister that way or don't speak to your brother with that tone of voice is a bigger deal than those other things. And yet we often either just fuss about it or don't really enforce that. But if you don't enforce that, if you don't teach them about the need for the right attitude toward their neighbors and loving their neighbors, which means seeking their good at your expense, love is about sacrifice. If you don't teach that there, they'll never learn it. It's a, uh, in the family, there's a division of labor. It's in the family that we learn the necessity and importance of working together in harmony of effort. The goal and objective of the covenant household is to prepare us to work with others to accomplish great tasks. A house full of sinners is going to sin, sometimes very painfully and seriously, and it's in, it is in there that we learn to love in spite of another person's sins. We learn patience, which is one of the fruits of the Spirit, long-suffering, forgiveness, and redemption. Goal number six, self-denial which is really another aspect of maturity. Selfishness is the picture of immaturity. Selflessness is the picture of maturity. I am not... This is, this is a key lesson every child must learn. Okay, I want to say, at the end of the day, respect is going to be very central to what your kids have to do. But here's one of the key things your child has to learn. You've got 18 years roughly to teach them this. Get going on it. I... I am not the center of the universe. That means you have to let go. You are not there to make their life totally comfortable. That's a lie. Their life is not going to be totally comfortable. You're going to give them plenty of comforts and lots of things they don't deserve, but you have to teach your child They don't always get what they want. They sometimes have to do things they don't want to do. And they're going to cry. And you're going to say, too bad. Cry anyway, but you're going to do it. That's what I mean about holy insistence. 
Now, I'm not suggesting that you're ungracious or unkind, but don't give the, oh, honey, sweetie pie, please don't cry for mommy or daddy and, and all that. And I realize there's age-appropriate things and all of that. But, but watch, be careful. You want to balance. Again, it's always in the context of love, but love sometimes says, no, you're not going to do that. Go over and do what I said to do. Okay? If they're little kids and you're about to leave and they're throwing a fit because you're leaving, leave. They'll get over it. They'll be just fine. In fact, they'll be better off if you do. Because they're going to learn they're not the center of the universe. That's really important. Um, When fathers and mothers learn to be responsible, doing what needs to be done, even when it's not convenient, that means they have to have self-denial, teaching their children to take responsibility and to do their duties by honoring and obeying those who are in authority over them. That would be you as parents, but also grandparents and other adults and pretty much everybody in their life. They're inferiors to, and they learn to show respect and do what they're supposed to do, and you insist on that. Uh, Number seven, sharing. You can see all these overlap. God requires us to give to him and to others. Where should we learn this lesson? It does not come naturally. We are now in the roughly fourth generation of affluent, spoiled kids. Very few of us have escaped the negative impact that this produces, and none of us have escaped the devastating impact it's having on our culture. Ephesians 4.28 tells us about hard work. Let him who stole steal no longer, but rather let him labor, working with his hands what is good. Why? So that he'll have something to give to him who has need. One of your key lessons for your kids is teach them how to sacrifice, how to give to others. The overly indulgent do not know how to honor and respect. The attitude is you owe me. The nurtured and disciplined know how to deny themselves and how to give to others. And by the way, those are the happy kids. Not the one that's adult. You give a kid everything they want, they are not happy. God, Chesterton talks a lot about the paradoxes of the Bible. That's one of them. If you try to get everything, you will be miserable. And if you're given everything, you'll be miserable. But if you learn to give, the Bible says, give and it will be given to you. Pressed down, shaken together, and running over. God loves a cheerful giver. Give that to your sister. Who's mine? Give that to your sister and I want you to give it to her with a smile on your face. Yes, ma'am. Yes, sir. That was a valuable lesson. And that's a lesson that's going to make you have a happy child. If not that moment, someday. Because they're going to find out it is true that it's more blessed to give than to receive. That there is more happiness in that service. So you are, you're called to see you have the long view. A two-year-old can't see past the moment. All he knows is, I want it, and I want it now, and I'm the center of the universe. And your job is to teach him that's not true and you don't get to have everything you want right now. Sometimes you get it, sometimes you don't. I can see further than you. I'm older than you. God gave you parents for a reason. I've lived longer and I can see past the moment. I'm thinking about when you're 14 and when you're 21 and when you're 40. 
And when you have a wife and kids and a job, I'm getting you ready for those things today when I tell you, no, you can't have everything you want right now. Um, again, these are related. Service, number eight. Giving husbands. The faithful covenant household produces godly loving leaders who sacrificially serve their families. Husbands and fathers providing, protecting, comforting, loving, instructing, serving their wives and children. You're the chief servant, the chief foot washer. Okay? That doesn't mean there's no division of labor where the wife does some things, the husband does other things. That's not at all. But I love this axiom. The old, there's one that says, never ask anybody to do something that you're not willing to do. Throw that one out. Husbands, fathers, never ask anyone to do something they haven't seen you do. That's a better one. Submissive wives, the faithful covenant household produces godly wives and mothers who fear no fear, Peter says. Wives and mothers who help their husbands and manage their households and provide for their children, again, sometimes by giving them what they want, but always giving them what they need, which isn't always what they want. <coughs> Obedient children, faithful covenant households produce godly children who joyfully serve the good of the entire household, not at every given moment. But ultimately, as you teach them and train them, children who honor and obey their parents, cooperate and help with the household duties, and promote the peace and unity in the family. So you say, well, my son's obedient. Every time I tell him to get up and go help his mother bring the groceries in, he does. Well, sometimes I have to tell him two or three times. No. You've trained your son that when mom drives up, you're out the door seeing if you can help. I don't have to tell you to get up and go because you have a servant's heart that I've taught you to have because of discipline. How come you didn't get up? Get on out there. I better not ever have to ask you to get up. When your mom's coming in uh, from the store, you meet her at the door and you help. You see the difference in that? That may seem like a little thing, but it's an attitude. It's a, it's, it, you're teaching them not just to do something that's good, but to be aware and on the lookout to do something that's good. There's a big difference in that. So that, what I, I see this in the church a lot. There's a, there's a group of young men, for example, who constantly will come to me. Pastor Booth, what can I do? Is there something I can do to help? Do we need to set up something? Do we need to do that? There are others who, they're out the door playing. It never crosses their mind. Now, if I go get them and I say, would you come help? They will. They're not disobedient in that way. But there's a qualitative difference in those two. And so you teach your kids that. You train deeper than just mere outward and superficial obedience. Number nine, um, productive labor. Remember the goal is for Adam and Eve to have dominion over the earth, to cultivate the garden, to subdue the earth, to conquer the curse after sin. And so uh, fathers and husbands provide for our families food and shelter, comfort and good cheer, protection from enemies, tithes and offerings, work in order to give, um, of course, if you're not giving and you're not tithing and you're not doing what God says to do, don't expect your children are going to. Uh, so because the importance of tithing, let me just say this about tithing. You remember, this is a complicated argument. Some of you have heard this, but I think it's the most powerful argument for tithing. First of all, everybody tithes. 
It's only a question of what you tithe to. When uh, Abraham, the argument in Hebrews is that Jesus is of the order of Melchizedek and the Melchizedekian priesthood is superior to the Levitical priesthood. And the way we know that is Abraham paid tithes to Melchizedek and the Levites who were in the loins of Abraham, in other words, they hadn't been born yet, because their father paid tribute to Melchizedek were his descendants, the Levites, were inferior to Melchizedek. Did you follow all that? Whoever you pay your 10% to, God says pay it to me as a recognition that I give you everything and as a token, as a tribute to me as your superior and your Lord and your King, I require a tithe. You say, well, I'm, I'm broke. I got a bass boat payment. Okay, well then, if you tithe to the bass boat payment, then that's your king. You do tithe. It's a matter of what you tithe to. And as you teach your children about this, you're teaching them an important principle about who God is. What's important. Same decision. We we make the decision to go to church once, not every Sunday. Because God requires that. And we're faithful to God. And that's what our kids, that's all they know. There are families that know the joys that only come from hard work. I should say these are families. And so... uh, so when we teach our kids that there are all kinds of joys in the world. Remember I said at the end of the week, joy is a big deal. Do your kids know the joy of a job well done? Of a pat on the back for having done their chores as you told them to do them? That's a joy you don't get from playing a video game. There's a joy that comes from that, but it's a cheap one compared to the other one. There's a joy from having worked hard and done well on a test. There's a, jo- there's a joy that comes from having helped your sister. Or the lady next door. I want your house to be full of every joy God has to offer every week. But there's a particular joy then that only comes in those particular ways. Number ten, we'll stop uh, here. Well, I'm going to actually add an eleventh one. I've got three minutes. Let's see what I'm Filling the earth. Or, excuse me, godly, the goal and objective, of course, is godly children. That's number ten. I mean, that's the big thing we're talking about. Fill the earth. Not It's not full yet. Uh, we want you to have a quiver full, and you're, everybody has different sized quivers, so that's not, I'm not going to get into that particular discussion right now. But uh, So I'll, we'll talk about family size on another night, but let's just say we need to have lots of kids to fill the earth with godly, godly people. The future is ours, training our children to be mature, responsible individuals, to be mature, responsible family members, mature, responsible church members, mature, responsible citizens, advancing God's kingdom, reproducing more faithful children, uh, blessing the best, it's the best place for evangelism, children's children, which is the success of the covenant household. Now, one I don't have on my list that needs to be in there somewhere, you can squeeze it in somewhere, but it's really critical. And that is, I think, uh, if I had to pick out one thing that's important that you're going to be teaching your kids every single day is respect. What is the one command God gives to children? Honor your father and your mother. That's the only command in the Bible to children. Now, the principle is, if you're honoring your parents, then you also honor all other authorities who represent your parents, teachers, pastors, pastors policemen, whoever else is out there, it's by extension. 
Honor your father and your mother. So you teach your children to respect everybody. They start by respecting you. They look you in the eye. They respond when you talk to them. And it drives me crazy to go somewhere, and oftentimes in churches where kids are running around, and I speak to them, and they act like I don't exist, or they walk right by. They have no sense of obligation that I have to owe anybody else anything. You're not my daddy. Kids will even say that kind of thing. You're not my mama. You need to be teaching your kids and disciplining for it that when you're spoken to, you speak. Not just by adults, but by even other kids. And you teach them, young men, I mean, I realize these are cultural customs, not specifically biblical, but it's the culture we're in. You teach young boys to shake hands and look somebody in the eye, not look down and mumble, okay? They speak. And teach young ladies the proper way to respond and, and, and be engaged. You, you are not the center of the universe. Your number one job, child, every day is to get up and honor God by honoring all the authorities He put in your life. And being faithful and obedient in those things cheerfully. And you discipline for that and teach for that because that is lovely. When you see that, right now I'm, ta- I'm meeting with all the teenagers in our church one-on-one. And I'm talking to them about how to integrate into the adult world. Think about it. If you had a young uh, a 13-year-old, a 15-year-old just walk up to you, maybe they haven't spoken to you before and and I said, Mr. Higgin, how you doing? I'm so-and-so. Uh, I hadn't really talked to you much before, but I noticed y'all are going to have a baby. How, how are y'all been doing? Wouldn't it be great? And what would you think of that young person as they walked away? Wow. Okay. I was so um, proud to have a couple of young men. This has been a couple of years back. I had a, a contractor friend. Two of them, they weren't believers. And one of them had had his son work for him one day, and he was an absolute disaster. A 16-year-old boy that was disrespectful and horrible, worked one day. This was the son of the contractor. A week or so went by, and he asked me, do you have some young men? I need a couple of guys to work for a day. So I got two of the young men from our church to go out, and they worked out there all day. When I came back out, I knew these men really well. They built my house. and and, And separately, one of them said, he didn't have children, but he said, if I ever had sons, that's what I would like them to be like. The other guy, who's a professing atheist, said to me separately, I don't know what y'all are putting in the water out there, but uh, man, I was impressed with those guys. They worked hard. They were respectful. What are you putting in the water? And I jokingly, because we were friends, I knew him, and he knew I was a pastor. I said, well, it's the sermons. And I said, I'm kind of kidding, but I'm kind of not. Because these kids, that's where they've grown up. They've been taught these things. They didn't fall out of the sky. They're not just naturally respectful. They've been taught these things, and it shows. But that's what you want for your kids, is wherever they go, they're not perfect, we know that. Wherever they go, though, people say, how did you get your kids to do that? And you didn't have to get them to do it, because now they just do it. That's who they are. It's not just what they do. So remember, the hearts of children is, is the big thing. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the community of your people. We thank you for Christian friends. Help us, Father. We know that we're needy and that there's so many things that we do wrong day in and day out. We have a lot to learn. 
But Lord, you promised to help us and to bless faithfulness, to hear our prayers and to work in us, to change us. And so, Lord, I pray for every parent here and those who will be parents, that you will prepare them and equip them and give them the encouragement and the strength and the information uh, and the community and all the things they need to be found faithful in this most important task of raising godly children for your sake and for your kingdom. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.